0: We're in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Uh, I hope you um, have been with us and you kind of get the the flow of the book, because we're starting to dig now deeply into the book. John has introduced Jesus in 1, 1 through 18. We saw the calling, uh, and it was select, but we saw the calling of some of the disciples. And as we talked about that, each one that is called, there's a particular name or title Of Jesus that is emphasized uh, in those callings which is quite important and now we're in chapter two where Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for the first Passover of uh, of a number there are three at least that Jesus goes to and it's at that Passover that he turns over the tables money changers tables and also drives out the uh, people selling the sacrificial animals in the court of the temple we talked about why that was so important last week so I want to pick up with verse 18 of, of chapter 2 as well because now the the response to what Jesus did as the leadership uh, we are assuming when he says in verse 18 so the Jews said to him I've talked about that before John the, the writer of the gospel When John uses the phrase, the Jews, he's not talking about all Jewish people in the state of the nation of Israel in AD 30. That is a little phrase that he uses for the leadership. And so um, just make sure you always remember that this isn't a broad blanket statement about all Jews. It's the leadership, more than likely the Sanhedrin or members of, or a representative group of the Sanhedrin. It was on Temple Mount when they saw Jesus do what he did that we read about last week. So they asked him, and this is a very interesting way they ask him this question. What sign do you show us for doing these things? And the phrase these things refers to what we studied last week when he turned over the money changer tables plus the animals, uh, selling of animals, all that we talked about. So they're asking him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, show us something that gives us tangible, tactile evidence of why you have the right to do what you just did. Because what the Lord did and the words that he used, which we we looked at last week from Psalm 69, he's claiming inestimable authority here authority to do something that no ordinary person would have the authority to do. But they ask what sign. And the Greek word there is seismon. John loves to use that word. He uses it over and over again. So he's taking that from the question, a question that these leaders ask. In other words, let's paraphrase it. Show us a sign. Give us some demonstrable sign that you have the right to do this. And Jesus' response is curious. There is no way they understood what he said. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Question mark. Now they, of course, the Jewish leadership were referring to temple the temple that Herod the Great had built. And perhaps a better way to paraphrase that, it was 46 years ago, they started to build this temple. So you're gonna do it in three days? You're gonna rebuild it in three days? Because Herod started that, it's an incredible story. If you ever wanna really understand the the remarkable engineering expertise, that these individuals had to build this temple, these were brilliant engineers. And the way they built it, we still see the remnants of it if you go to Jerusalem on the retaining wall, which is what the Western Wall is. Anyway, they think he's talking about the literal temple. Continuing, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Because obviously, uh, you know, destroy the temple, kill me, in three days I'll raise it up. That's prophesying, anticipating, prefiguring his death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That is reminding us of something, and John really loves to do this in his gospel. It reminds us that the resurrection, the fact that And truth of the resurrection is going to change these men. And John, remember, he's writing this all early 90s. John's gospel, the last of the gospels written. And so John is just saying, when Jesus was raised from the dead, we remembered what he said, which increased our belief in the word of God and our belief in what he was saying. Because the, the resurrection is the linchpin of biblical Christianity. If there is no resurrection there is absolutely nothing that is worthwhile studying about Jesus because he's a dead prophet in the grave. Why would we follow him? Because everything the prophets had said is he's going to come back to life. That he did come back to life is the linchpin of their faith. It changed these men. That's all John is saying here. And it's really a, it's like a foreshadowing in his response to these leaders. It's a foreshadowing Of what Jesus is all about. He's gonna die, he's gonna be resurrected. This is in the spring of AD 30. We have three more years before this occurs this meaning his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's just saying something that they didn't understand, the disciples didn't understand, but John is telling us when he was resurrected, we're starting to put all this stuff together. Okay? No questions? Let's finish chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25 is really an introduction to chapters 3 and 4. That's really what these verses are. And you you have to put your theological hat on now because I want you to think with me about what the Lord is saying here. Again, these verses... Are really an introduction to chapter 3 where Jesus will have his dialogue with Nicodemus and chapter 4 will Jesus, where Jesus will have his uh, dialogue with the Samaritan woman. Here's what it states verse 23 now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. The signs that we are aware of is what he did in cleansing the temple, the court of the temple. Apparently, there were other things he did as well. Now, what verse 24 does is gives us a sense. What was the nature of this belief, this faith? Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, that's a lot of phrases and concepts that are deeply theological. What John is doing is commenting on the nature of the faith Of those people in Jerusalem in the spring of A.D. 30 when they saw Jesus do what he did in that Passover feast. And he believed. What kind of faith was it? Well from what verse 24 and 25 says it was a spurious shallow superficial faith because Jesus does not entrust himself except to those of genuine faith. True, trusting faith. Not spurious, superficial, shallow faith. Let me let me give you an example. For someone to say, well, I believe there was a person named Jesus. I believe there was a person named Jesus who died on a cross. I know b- the story is he was resurrected. So I believe in the historical Jesus. Is that the faith that causes Jesus to entrust himself to that person? Or is that a superficial, shallow, spurious faith that, quite frankly, is meaningless? Lots of of people believe in a historical Jesus. That's not what you have to believe. The content of the faith that saves... Is I believe Jesus was died, was buried, and was resurrected for me. My sin problem can only be dealt with by Him. That's a lot different than I believe there was an historical person who lived two thousand years ago in Jerusalem. Now there's got to be questions for this, so start shooting them at me. Well, one question I
1: had, Jim, was one is of the mind, the intellect. Yes, I know that, and then is what you know is being said here. The other one is a heart knowledge and a personal, personal spiritual relationship. Because can we separate the mind from the spirit here? And can and can you do some defining in that regard as far as this passage goes?
0: Well, uh, I'll, I'll I'll start my response to your question by what an old Baptist pastor at one time said to me. <laughs> There's 18 inches between the mind and the heart. And that 18 inches makes all the difference in the world when it comes to eternity. So to me, um, a way of thinking and applying uh, what the Lord is saying here is an intellectual faith. And what I mean by that is where You process a a block of information that's historical, and you reach the conclusion, I believe in God, I believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, and I believe, historically, it's true that he died on the cross. There's A lot of evidence for that. And I believe that at least what they say is he was resurrected from the dead. There is nothing personal about that. There's nothing that in any way is connecting the important historical events associated with Jesus and your personal need of salvation from sin, which you come to recognize as your core problem that only Jesus can solve for you. And you appropriate that work that he accomplished for you by faith. I believe Jesus died for me. He paid the penalty for me and he was resurrected for me. That's the difference between an intellectual assent about the facts of Jesus life and the personal understanding and appropriation of what that Jesus did for you to solve your sin problem, which results in you having the gift of eternal life. Now I took about two minutes to answer your question, but that, no. that's in effect what the Lord is saying. Because he says, he knew, this is the end of verse 25, he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is omniscient, and he knows the heart and the mind of everyone he talks to. Yeah. And what is going to happen in chapter 3 is you're going to see an illustration of this with Nicodemus. What's going to happen in chapter 4 is you're going to have an illustration of this with the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets as he's headed up to Galilee. So John John is introducing in verses 23, 24, and 25, a theological perspective. Remember who Jesus is. Remember his omniscience. Remember he knows all things. He knows your heart and your mind. He knows your need. He knows everything about you. Mm -hmm. And he is not interested in superficial, shallow faith. That's not what he's interested in. And Jesus is not interested in being a bread king, where he feeds the 5,000 and he has a crowd of about 15,000 following him around. Why? Because they say, well, he did it once. Maybe he'll do it again. Maybe this time he'll throw in some McDonald's hamburgers or more importantly, some pizza. And even the crown, he'll put in peanut butter ice cream. So we're following him because of what he, the, the physical needs he meets for us. He's a bread king. That's Jesus is not interested in that. Yeah. You see in John chapter six, he'll do the feeding of the 5,000. He's going to dismiss everybody. He's going to say, "They says they want to make him king. He says, go home. I'm not the king that you're interested in. You want a bread king. Jesus is not interested in a superficial, shallow, spurious response. Mm-hmm. 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 There are millions and probably billions of people who believe there was an historical person named Jesus. That's not faith. Mm-hmm. So can that's you, recognizing historical evidence. So in addition to that, can you
1: compare that old covenant to new covenant pre-Pentecost,
0: post-Pentecost?
1: Is that also part of this analytical versus emotional within your heart
0: well yes and and no uh no in the sense that salvation has whatever era you're in whether you're with abraham or david or jesus or paul or john or whatever salvation has always been by faith justification is always by faith but the difference between the old and the new covenant is not how you are saved which is by faith plus nothing. That's the whole point Paul's making in Romans chapter 4. God has always, always, always justified people by faith. The difference between the two covenants is the role of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. And so what Pentecost does is, is Pentecost is the beginning of the, or the inauguration of the new covenant and the role of the Holy Spirit in not only the regeneration, the salvation process, but also in all that the new covenant means for the person who responds to God in faith. And that's part of what I'm going to be talking about in, in the next couple of sections, because Jesus is going to start to really talk about this, was- chapter 3, 4, and 5.
1: Wasn't that so, all part of what Jesus walked into in the temple? Why he got so ticked off was because it's just become this mechanical thing for them. Absolutely. Got a couple of pigeons. Okay, well, that's going to get you this. And it just became a very um, cerebral type this, the that. Well, way.
0: and it was, yes. And it was, it was a thoroughly legalistic system. Right. It's based on, now this is crude, but it's really the bottom line. Based on your performance, doing all the right things, going to temple, doing the sacrifices, doesn't matter what's going on in your heart. Doesn't matter whether you mean it. It doesn't matter whether you've thought through what this really means. This is how God is atoning for my sin. If you, You're just going through the motions. So yeah, that's what Jesus walks into. He walks into a Judaism that is based on performance and legalism, and that's why when these people are believing in him, as he says in in verse 23 there, John is commenting on the nature of that belief, because belief, faith, trust, is a matter of not only intellectually understanding something, but also the heart and it also has content to it, very significant content that's personal. It's, I don't just believe in a historic event. No. I believe in that historic event personally because that solved my problem. And I'm appropriating all of that to my life by faith, which is another way of talking about salvation. All right. Let's look at chapter 3. Uh, and yep. keep, keep in mind what we've just been saying. Because this is going to illustrate this meaning, chapter 3, and then chapter 4. This is going to illustrate the very point John is making. So, there was a man, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 3, and there was a man of the Pharisees. So, now we know something. This man's a Pharisee. and We've talked about who they are. I think you know who they are. And that would mean from what we lead, uh, what we find out, he's in the Sanhedrin. His name's Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. That means he's on the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin is the governing body of Judaism in the first century. So this guy, Nicodemus, is a very important man. He's a man of religious influence. He's a man in terms of the Jewish culture of political power, and more than likely, he's a man of means I don't mean he's extremely wealthy, but he's he's a man who, because of his position, he is alert to what is going on. He's informed, he knows the law, and he has been hearing and watching what Jesus is doing. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, that may or may not be significant, Sometimes you hear uh, people say, well, he came by night because he was afraid of talking to Jesus during the daytime. That's probably not necessarily correct because a lot of Jewish leaders talk to Jesus during the daytime. Perhaps John is saying he comes by night because I want to remind you, I want to remind you that darkness darkness is the sphere of Satan. Darkness is the sphere of that which is rebelling against God, that which is opposed to God. That's the realm of the world. That's the realm of that system. And so he's coming to him at night and says, Rabbi, which as you know, is Hebrew meaning teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God which is an extraordinary statement for him to make. He's affirming something. We know you are from God. Why? Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, I mean, this is, Nicodemus is saying something here quite astounding. Now again, what is the depth of his faith it's pretty shallow and you'll see that in just a minute but he's recognizing something like those of verse 23 many believed in his name when they saw the signs nicodemus is seeing the signs and he's believing what's he believing you are from god that doesn't mean he's acknowledging he's the messiah That doesn't mean he's acknowledging he's the son of God. He's just saying, nobody can do what you're doing unless God has sent him. Now you go back through the Old Testament texts, the four major prophets, the 12 minor prophets, during the monarchy, lots of people showed up and did fantastic things as evidence they are from God. Think of Elijah, think Elisha, think Jeremiah, think Isaiah, etc., etc. So that Nicodemus is saying this, is not that significant. All he's doing is, you're doing things that only can be explained by God. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, now remember, in Greek, that means amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born from above, or born again, he cannot see, the kingdom of God. Now you need to circle or underline the word see, because that is the whole point that Jesus is making. You, Nicodemus, a Pharisee who sits on the Sanhedrin, you have been observing what I've been doing. You are calling them signs and you are reaching the conclusion that I have come from God. Nicodemus, I want to kick this up quite a few notches. If you really want to understand, and if you really want to see the kingdom, something has to change in you. This superficial, shallow, spurious faith You're seeing something fantastic. You're believing it's from God. It's got to be much deeper than that, much more important than that. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus, you have got to be born from above, or we translate that born again. If you want to see if you really want to understand what I'm doing, there has to be a change in you. Nicodemus responds, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now listen to me. Nicodemus is thinking only at the natural human level. And so his rhetorical questions to Jesus, in effect, is saying, you're talking about a gynecological absurdity. I'm an old man. How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? And again, now listen to me. Nicodemus is responding at the human temporal level. He is thinking only of the temporal, temporal, you know, by temporal, the temporal level of things, the finite level of things. He's only factoring what Jesus is saying through his rational. I observe things. What I observe is real. And I cannot go back into my mother's womb and be born again. That's ridiculous. How's Christ respond to that? Jesus answered, verse five Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now again, if you do things like this in your Bible, you want to circle the word enter and connect it with the word see in verse 3. Jesus is kicking the whole discussion up a number of more notches, and he says something. Now listen, Jesus is using the language of Ezekiel 36, verses 25, 26, and 27. That is a major new covenant passage. And so when Jesus stresses that, and Nicodemus would know these things, Nicodemus would understand these things, undoubtedly he thought He's talking about Ezekiel because the birth that he's talking about, born of water and spirit, from Ezekiel is a spiritual birth. It's a birth that's not only tied with physical birth, the water, the breaking of the amniotic sac that releases the water when a baby's born in the mother's womb, but also of the spirit. Nicodemus, what I'm saying to you is not new truth. This is truth that's anchored in the Old Testament. And you know the Old Testament. For you to enter the kingdom, you're not only born of water, you're born physically. You must also be born spiritually. Nick, uh, in Ezekiel, I sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. That's Ezekiel 36. He'll be born of the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh. The physical, that which is born of spirit is spirit. I'm kicking it up a bunch of notches. I want you to think not of finite temporal. I want you to think of eternal and infinite. The kingdom of God, for you to see it and understand what I'm doing, and for you to enter it, Nicodemus, a profound transformation has to occur in your life. Because you have been born of water. That's what you were asking about in that gynecological absurdity you were observing and trying to conceive of as an old man going back into your mother's womb. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual birth. I'm talking about the truth that Ezekiel 36 teaches. And then he says, do not marvel that I say to you, you, now listen, this is really important. Do not marvel that I said to you, singular, you, plural, must be born again. So Jesus has just shifted from, Nicodemus, this happens to you, to Nicodemus, this must happen to everyone. For everyone to see and enter the kingdom, they must be born again. So he has shifted from singular you to plural you. Everyone must be born again. What did John teach us? These people, at the end of chapter 2, people see his signs, believe. What kind of belief is that? It's spurious, superficial, and shallow. Jesus knows their hearts, and he will never entrust himself to someone with such superficial faith. Nicodemus is an example of that spurious faith. He's making the connections. What you're doing is fantastic. You've got to be from God. And Jesus says, for you to really see the importance of what I'm doing, you must be born again. For you to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Born of water, physical birth, born of spirit, spiritual birth. There must be a transformation in your life. Verse 8 The wind blows where it, I lost my place, where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the word wind, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word wind and the word spirit are the same words. So Jesus is saying like the wind blows, you feel its effect. We saw that last night with the torrential storm we had, high wind. You can't see the wind. You see its effects, but you can't see the wind. So is the spirit. You can't see the spirit, but you can see and enter into the benefits of the spirit's effect. E F F E C T. So Jesus has just, in his, he's not done yet. But in these first few verses of chapter 3, Jesus has just illustrated what John had told us in John 2, 23, 23 and 24 into 25 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus' faith is there's something going on, you're from God. Okay, that's not the faith I'm interested in, Jesus is saying. If you really want to see and understand, you got to be born again. If you want to enter God's kingdom, you got to be born again. And I'm telling you, That is a spiritual rebirth that is at the hands of, by the power of, and the means of the Holy Spirit of God, just like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 declared. Nicodemus got it? Verse 9, no, he's got some more questions. Let me stop there and see if you're with me. Have I done a good job of explaining this?
1: Yes, Dr. This, is remarkable,
0: this is a remarkable dialogue. everybody with me Dr. Eckman uh, y- yes uh, Fred
1: yeah so in in leadi- in reading through this and, and putting it into a context, this is almost uh, like Satan <clears throat> is using Nicodemus to tempt Jesus and Jesus is rebuking him much like the s- satanic episode in in the, fort- in the 40 days in the wilderness.
0: Well, in a, in a way, maybe. I mean, I don't want to, I, I certainly can't do that with authority, that Satan is incarnating Nicodemus. But certainly the thoughts, and the, if I can even say the logic of what Nicodemus is saying, is satanic, in the sense that, oh, it's all right to believe in Jesus historically, but that's not what he's interested in, in other words. Because that's one of the really fascinating things that Satan's doing in the 21st century. There are lots of people who believe in the historical Jesus. But don't talk about this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's not the Jesus I'm interested in. I don't want to talk about that Jesus. I don't want to talk about the Jesus that died on the cross to solve the problem of human sin. And Satan, Satan loves for you and me to embrace the historical Jesus, Satan does not want us to embrace the idea that Jesus paid the price for our sin and we're born again when we really understand that. Russ, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, you mentioned water and you've um, tied it to uh,
1: physical birth. I've right. always kind of understood that to be uh,
0: baptism. Nope. Nope. Not at all. Wrong. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> what's the, what's the word? Um, when I'm uh, trying to fix Well, that. Um, off the top of my head, I forget what the exact uh, Greek word for water there. It's just normal, ordinary water. Uh-huh. I think, in other words, um, Russ, if you are saying that water there is baptism, then you are believing in baptismal regeneration. That you've got to be baptized to be born again. Right, yeah, no, that's... And please, please don't tell me you believe in that. No. (laughs) Okay, I mean the Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration. Because basically you must be baptized or you're not saved. Yeah, it's Jesus and nothing else. Because yeah, and, and well, and that's right. But I mean when you just you just look at you just look at what Jesus is saying to him. There are two types of birth. There's a birth by water, which is physical birth, the amniotic sac breaks and the, the water, It's You know what I mean by the water is birth. Yeah. You all know what I mean yeah. by that. That's, that's the physical birth because he says that which is born of flesh is flesh, born by water, that which is born of the spirit, born by the spirit. There's a physical birth and there's a spiritual birth. Everybody is born physically. Every human being that's breathing has been born physically. But not every human being is born spiritually. And that's why he says it. that is the work of the Holy Spirit. In theology, we call that regeneration. But that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He does that. And Nicodemus, for you to see and to enter the kingdom, this has to happen to you. And so that's why, again, go back to 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 2. A spurious, shallow, superficial faith is not what gets you into the kingdom, so to speak. And Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows what's going on. And his whole mission and the mission of the church is to move people to this point of wanting to put their faith and trust in Jesus (coughs) to experience the spiritual new birth. And so, Russ, I mean, I hope what I've said there is clear. I mean, it is not baptism, and I'm very dogmatic on that. That is not what Jesus is talking about here.
1: Doctor, Doctor Eckman?
0: yes, sir. Uh, the word is hudoor. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
1: Jim, There's would not... you say w- would you say that everyone is born with the spirit, but not everyone is born of the spirit, in the sense that? Um, Every one, every human being that's ever lived is born with a spirit. No. Okay, go. Comment on that, would you?
0: Well, I mean, the your if what you are saying is true, the logic's next step to that is universalism, that then everybody ultimately. Well, I'm not says, saying it.
1: It was a form of a question to use, you, know, in the sense that. I mean everyone does have a
0: spirit, right? Well, that's a human spirit small yeah,
1: yeah that's the point, okay? But yeah.
0: Not,
1: yeah, go ahead. And all
0: that all that that is just the language, um, really, actually of both the Old and New Testament, but it's the language that helps us to understand what is a human being. A human being is created in the image of God. And that human being has a material dimension and an immaterial dimension. The material dimension is the body. The immaterial dimension is the soul slash spirit, that immaterial. When we die, that immaterial soul slash spirit, if you're a believer, goes to be with the Lord Jesus, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. So um, it is that immaterial part soul slash spirit, that every human being has that. That's part of being a human being. But you need the capital S, Holy Spirit. And that only occurs when you are born again. I'm using the language of Jesus. When you're born again, then the Spirit takes up residence in you. In the language of Paul, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. And that is totally different. That is a totally, totally different category and understanding of what it means, it meaning the Bible, when it talks about the human spirit. Yeah. That's that immaterial part. I mean, I, I, I don't see any of you really well because it's really not sharp and clear like if you were, we were in the same room together. But when I look at you, I am only seeing part of what you are. I see your physical body. But that's not all you are. And only part Fred of that. Red Scott is not just the body I see in this Zoom picture. It, you are also a spirit, a soul slash spirit that is immature. I can't see that. Nobody can see that that's a human being. So anyway, yeah. Thank you. It was there another question? I thought I heard somebody say something. Yeah, um, oh, go ahead. Somebody speak.
1: Yeah, Dr. Edmund, John. Yes, John, go ahead. What does Jesus mean then when he says born of water? We're talking
0: about the Spirit. No, born of water, as I've said now twice, is physical birth. Okay. It's a physical birth. Like when you were a baby 27 years ago in your mother's womb, (laughs) when you were a baby, you were in the amniotic fluid and the amniotic sac of your mother. When you were born, that water broke. I'm I'm not speaking medically, but that's basically what happened. You're born of water. And that's the next verse. Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The physical birth, born of flesh is flesh, born of water. But that's not what enables you to see or to enter the kingdom. You need to be born of the Holy Spirit, regenerated, born again or literally that phrase is born from above. That's literally what the phrase is. So John, am I I helping you to see that it's a contrast between physical birth and spiritual birth? Jesus is saying physical birth is not enough. Okay? right. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless
1: they are born of water and the Spirit. And the Spirit. I I mean, we're all born of water.
0: Physically. That's correct. That's what makes so, you a human being. That's, that's, that's no what makes you a human being in the kingdom of God, right? You need you're you're born of water, physical birth, you're a human being. That is that you are a human being is not enough to enter the kingdom. You need to okay. be born of the spirit as well. That's his wow. whole point. In verse five, verse six, and then as he's going to explain it in 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 the next paragraph, as Nicodemus keeps asking him questions.
1: And Tim, I have a question.
0: Woody. Yes, Woody.
1: Hey, um, it's not like uh, I'm just asking this. Let's say that you're born of the Spirit. Is that just you just get zapped and all of a sudden you're born
0: of the Spirit, or is this
1: part of the sanctification?
0: That's part of justification
1: justification
0: that's to it that is another aspect of it. remember when we talked about all that stuff a while back it's like your your life is a timeline that point where you put your faith in Jesus Christ Woody he is at that point that you're spiritually reborn you're born again you're born from above the spiritual birth then that process of sanctification begins in, in which the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and dwells you all those things we've talked about before as well. So this, this is really, you're asking a really important question. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did it that way. The, the, that's why that's another term that's used in doctrine, but it is the Spirit who regenerates who gives you this new life. You are born again. And so that that very, very important uh, distinction that the Lord Jesus is making here in his discussion with Nicodemus, physical birth alone is not what you need to get into the kingdom. You also need to be spiritually born, reborn, born again, spiritual birth. And Woody, that is at that event when you put your faith in Christ. Okay. That specific point. And uh, Paul's language for that is that's when you're justified.
1: And that's when the spirit indwells us. That's
0: correct. He takes up residence okay. in your life. That's okay. correct. He's with us. Jim, yeah. Jim, not too long,
1: or, not too long ago, uh, Chad, who's with us today, uh, he was born uh, of the water. But recently... Uh, I don't know how long it's been, Chad, since you came to Christ, but now he is born of the Spirit. And in that process, it's not necessarily an even process of at 10 miles an hour, then you're 20 miles an hour, or you're 30% filled, and then you're 60% filled. It's, it's a matter of our entire lives, is it not, Jim, where we are being filled with that spirit, even though the spirit comes in instantly that we turn to Christ, but it's a process of growth and understanding and appreciation and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Can you you address that as far as like the progress that all of us perhaps uh, can see from a perspective, uh, a, a broad perspective?
0: Well, you I mean, you summarize it pretty well. I mean, um, when you when you put your faith in Christ, that event, that point in your life, that begins that process, again, the Apostle Paul calls it sanctification, but begins that process of growing in your dependence on the Lord Jesus, growing in your fellowship with the Lord Jesus, growing in your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. I mean, all of those things are a part of that. Um, Salvation is an instantaneous point in our lives. Our growth and sanctification is a process that takes the rest of our lives. If you come to the Lord Jesus at age 91 and you live to 91 and a half, you had a half year of growing. But if you come to Christ like I did in 1972, and uh, and I had lived a couple decades by then, but then you begin that process. So for me, the next fifty years—well, not quite fifty, but nearly fifty years—has been a, a a time of growth. It's sanctification, and you you learn greater dependence. You learn the trustworthiness of Jesus. You learn uh, your your the importance of your fellowship and dependence on him through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, through studying the word of God. I mean, what we're doing right now in studying John chapter three is a means to the end of sanctification. You're learning new truth. You're learning being refreshed. Some of the things you already knew you're refreshed. Maybe you learned a little something new about Christ. You have a greater understanding of now who you are in Christ and all that Christ has done for you. And all of those things, that's just a part. And it's, it's ongoing. It never ends till the moment we die. And so that's, well, maybe that's all I have to say about that.
1: Thank Can you. I go
0: on? Would that yeah. be all right? Because I'm looking at the clock here. I'd like to do one thing yet before we're done. Yes, Verse yes. nine, Nicodemus no. isn't done. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, just to me, that's a, that's a legitimate question. He's well-educated. He's one of the, probably the best educated person in Israel. He's a teacher of the law. He's a Pharisee, all that stuff. But he asks, how can these things be? Everything you've said to me, I understand that. How can these things be? And Jesus rebukes him. Are you, now, the ESV translations puts the definite article there. Are you the teacher of Israel? That's really, that's quite interesting. Not you are a teacher of Israel. You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Why the rebuke? because of what I said when we were discussing these previous verses, verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. The Lord Jesus is appealing to the language of Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And certainly, Nicodemus knew that passage. Along with Jeremiah 31, it's the most important Old Testament passage on the New Covenant and on the connection of the new covenant to the Holy Spirit of God. And so Jesus is struck. You're the teacher, and you don't understand these things? Amen, amen. Truly, truly, verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now that, Pronoun you is plural. So it's not only Nicodemus, it's the whole Sanhedrin. Amen, amen. I say to you, we speak of what we know. Bear witness to what we have seen. Please note Jesus is using the plural there, first-person plural. We, it's him, Jesus, and the Father. We speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen. I am revealing to you eternal infinite truth yet you do not receive our testimony the father broke through at my baptism and said this is my beloved son hear him i'm well pleased listen to him the holy spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove like a dove The testimony and witnesses and evidence of who I am, what I'm saying, what I represent, and what I'm doing is compelling. But you do not receive it. The word receive there is you do not welcome it. You do not embrace it. Verse 12. If I told you, plural, earthly things, and you, plural, do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you, plural, Heavenly things. I told you earthly things you do not believe. How in the world do I expect you to believe if I tell you heavenly things? So, Jesus, it's a rebuke, but in the form of a rhetorical question. But I have been doing miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, using earthly things, earth, earthly specific things, and you haven't believed. Why in the world would I expect you're going to believe when I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is really stressing the fundamental problem is unbelief. Verse 11, I already read 11, verse 13, excuse me. Now you got to follow this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, as soon as Jesus would have said that, Nicodemus's ears would have pricked up. That's Daniel 7.13. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. No one has gone up to heaven, but someone has descended. I have the Son of Man. Daniel 7.13. One like a son of man walked up the ancient days, received dominion, authority, kingdom. This is a profoundly important messianic passage in the Old Testament. Jesus is claiming to be that son of man. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's Numbers 21, verse nine. That is how God, as he commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent, how God rescued the people of Israel from a plague. So must the son of man be lifted up and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now Jesus has brought the whole discussion to its apex. He's brought it to the peak. How are you born again? How can these things be? I'm going to explain it to you, Nicodemus. I'm going to explain to you heavenly things here. I'm going to explain to you eternal things here. But there's an analogy I can draw, and you're aware of that. As in Numbers 21, verse 9, when Moses nailed that serpent to that piece of tree wood and everybody who looked on that serpent when faith was saved from the plague so the son of man must be lifted up nailed to a piece of wood and everyone who believes in him will be saved and have eternal life that's how these things can be Nicodemus because for you to truly be born from above, for the Holy Spirit to do his regenerating work, I have to finish my work. And I am the key to how these things will occur. You know the analogy, Numbers 21. As that serpent was nailed to a tree, I must be nailed to the tree, the Son of Man. And when you believe, When you personally, completely, totally believe that I died for your sin, and as that serpent substitutionarily paid the price, I am going to pay the price for every human being. So Jesus has moved each one of these discussion points with Nicodemus. He keeps ratcheting it up for this brilliant, the teacher of the law to really understand all of this Old Testament stuff. Ezekiel 36, Numbers 21, all points to me and my sacrificial substitutionary atoning death on a cross, just like that serpent was lifted up, nailed to that stake, and everyone who looked on that with faith was spared from the plague. So. I'm going to be lifted up and you look on me with faith, you will have the gift of eternal life. By now, Nicodemus' mouth must have been dropping open. Oh my goodness. I am in the presence of the Messiah. Because all of this stuff he's been talking about, point to the messianic passages of the old testament psalm 16 psalm 22 numbers 21 9 even that is a figure of what the messiah has to do it's going to tell us later on we're going to read about nicodemus two more times in this gospel nicodemus becomes a disciple of jesus nicodemus will join darrow joseph of arimathea and bury jesus Nicodemus will become a disciple. It is at this point, I believe, he becomes a disciple. He understands who Jesus is. His shallow, superficial faith has moved to a faith of depth and understanding. Oh, I get it. Do you? Everybody with me? Yes. That was great, Jim. Amen. Okay, you're with me. That's really, really good. Now, I want to start this. We're just going to start it. Next week, we get in depth. I believe verse 16 is now a theological commentary on what just happened. In other words, this could be Jesus speaking or it could be John summarizing. In one sense, that's immaterial. But you have a very, very famous verse that almost everybody has memorized, John 3, 16. Now, that first word, for, that's always an important structure marker. He is explaining what Nicodemus just heard. Being nailed to a cross, just like that serpent was lifted up in the the wilderness. Everyone looked in that serpent. Brown serpent believed was spared from the plague, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. But everyone looks upon him with faith and believes will have eternal life. Explains it for God so loved the world. Now, men, I would encourage you, I'm almost done because I know some of you on a time schedule, but please let me do this and I'll stop. You ought to circle the world because remember, Jesus is talking to a pharisee the people who heard the truth about jesus first were jews and they were a covenant people in the under the abrahamic covenant they were the people god had chosen as numerous as the stars of the sky to be a blessing to the world now jesus is saying god so loved the world this is a shocking staggering astonishing statement to make to a jewish leader for god so loved the jewish people the covenant people of israel that's not what he says for god so loved the world that he sent his only unique monogamous son next week we're going to pick up with john three sixteen. i have about 10 minutes of or 15 minutes of material i want to say about this verse it's a very important verse it's a verse almost every christian has memorized at one point or another but it is loaded with fleshing out everything jesus has been saying to nicodemus but we will start with verse 16 next week all right I heard right. no response, so I'm assuming... Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, no, Jim.
1: Appreciate it. Let me pray it. here,
0: and I'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. Thank you for the clarity of the Word of God. Thank you for what I hope was helpful, that the comment that we started with from verse 23, 24, and 25, uh, a faith that just believes historical facts is not the faith that is saving faith. And Jesus makes that very clear in his discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus believed that Jesus was from God because of what he was doing. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm interested. To be able to see and to enter the kingdom, you must be born of the spirit of God. You must be regenerated. I must remake and recreate you spiritually. And then he begins to explain how all that happens. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And everyone who looks and believes will have the gift of eternal life, because God so loved the world. That's why he did this. So we're at the heart of one of the most magnificent chapters in the Bible, the heart of what new covenant blessings mean, how they come through the Holy Spirit by means of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. That's where we are in this magnificent, marvelous, wonderful chapter. Thank you for these men who are willing to set aside time on their, in their busy lives to study in depth the word of God, to grow in their faith and dependence and trust in you, Lord Jesus, to grow in their fellowship with you, Heavenly Father, and to grow in their intimacy and dependence of being filled with the Holy Spirit every day. We worship you, O Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit. So may these men grow in faith, grow in the Lord, to be your representatives, to be your ambassadors, to represent you well in this dark, dark world. I commit them to you and ask your blessing on them in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a good day.